Hello, this is Lafayette Faust, creator of the Nevermore Hollows podcast. Thank you for making the show a success. Please take a moment to subscribe, give five stars, comment, and share the show with your friends. It's the best way to help us grow and to be able to continue to provide quality horror content. Also, please support our new art director, Chris Madman Goins, at Black Sheep Studios TN on Instagram. He has some amazing Nevermore Hollows art for sale, signed by the both of us, as well as many other original pieces I think you're going to love. Now, for you horror hounds who like to have a good laugh, I invite you to check out my other podcast. It's called The Three Uncool Cats. In it, my two friends and I sit in a basement and discuss music, movies, and whatever else comes into our warped minds. I would really appreciate it if you would give it a listen. Now, with that out of the way, I invite you to sit back, turn on a light, and prepare yourself. Marlene Bloom came fully awake. Every one of her senses was on full alert. She lay still in the dark, listening for whatever it was that had pulled her from her deep sleep. She was not afraid. She'd learned how to be brave after she found out that her parents were monsters. She heard a scrape, a bump, on the porch. She grabbed her gun, a Glock 40, which was on her nightstand. She slipped out of bed and made her way through the dark house to the living room. She peeked through a frosted glass sidelight onto the porch. The light was off, the porch shrouded in deep shadows. But she could see a black shape moving about. There was a flare of light, as if someone had struck a match. Then, suddenly, the angry hiss of a cat. It came from somewhere in the yard. The black shape jerked in response, gave a low growl, and then loped off into the night. She kept the light off with the intent to use the darkness to her advantage. She pulled the door open and looked onto the porch. Her blood ran cold. Her hands began to shake. In the center of the porch sat a man's head. Its skin was slack, gray. Its mouth was open. Its eyes were missing. In fact, even the brain had been carved out, leaving the skull hollow. A lighted candle had been placed inside, creating a grotesque human jack-o'-lantern. Dread coiled around Marlene like a snake. The gargoyle had returned. But how? 
She had killed the vicious creature one dark night a year ago in a desperate standoff behind an abandoned truck stop in the middle of the Arizona desert. Then she had hauled the body far into the desert and threw it into a deep arroyo where it would never be found. But yet, this head sitting on her porch was one of the ways the gargoyle liked to announce itself, the way that it instilled terror. She stood in the deep shadows of the porch, the grotesque human jack-o'-lantern at her feet. Her senses were heightened, and she was completely in tune with her training. She held the gun in a two-hand grip, sweeping her surroundings. Her home was a craftsman with a deep and wide front porch. To her right, only an empty porch swing. To her left, a couple of chairs with a small table, all clear. She eased the door shut behind her, then moved around the severed head onto the steps. The front yard was dark until the sidewalk, where a single antique-style street lamp stood aglow in its own phantom aura. Suddenly, there was movement behind her. She turned, saw a shadow jump up onto the porch railing, aimed, and almost fired. A large black-and-white cat sat on the railing, scanning the yard with its faintly glowing green eyes. Marlene knew this cat well. It was Junji, who lived a street over with Mr. Ito, a kindly old Japanese man who loved haiku and his flower garden. Junji had taken a liking to Marlene and often came to visit. Junji's calm body language suggested that the gargoyle was no longer in the vicinity. Marlene guessed that it had been Junji who had hissed earlier, likely when he had encountered the gargoyle on his nightly patrol of the neighborhood. Marlene had grown to trust Junji's instincts. If he wasn't currently in fight mode, she was probably safe, at least for the moment. She stepped back onto the porch and looked down at the severed head. You're pretty lucky, Junji, she said. The monster that did this doesn't scare easily. Junji gave a derisive meow, as if to say that the monster had chosen well to run away. The very day that Marlene had moved into her home last October, Junji had come to visit. She had been sitting on the porch in one of the chairs reading an old Jim Butcher novel, enjoying the golden rays of the autumn sun, and decided she needed another shot of coffee. She marked her place, closed the book, and set it on the table and stepped inside. When she had returned with her steaming mug, Junji sat on the table, book open, and seemed to be reading exactly where she'd left off. He had then glanced over his shoulder at her and gave an appreciative purr, as if he agreed with her choice of literature. She had come to believe that not only could Junji read, but that he also had a human-like sentience. In addition to reading, she had caught him pondering the various pieces of art and photographs in her house. There was even the time back in the spring where she had dropped a container of sugar on the porch while bringing in groceries. The container had popped open, causing a small mess. 
When she had returned to the porch with a broom and dustpan, she saw that someone had drawn a smiley face in the spilled sugar. No one was around, except Junji, who sat beside the sugar with a coy look on his cat face as if to say, What? You don't think I did that, do you? But she did think that he had. Marlene had a flexible mind and accepted that Junji was special and had the ability to communicate on an intelligent level and therefore spoke to him as such. Junji gave her another meow. This one was obviously a question which seemed to ask, What the hell was that thing? It's a freak of nature, she replied. I call it a gargoyle and I'll explain later. Junji gave her a come-on-now-out-with-it squint of his eyes. Okay, she said. My parents are scientists of the mad variety. When Marlene spoke of her parents, her eyes darkened, her countenance pinched in disgust. Geneticists, actually. And they spliced human DNA with the DNA from multiple animals, and what they ended up with was the gargoyle. Junji looked down at the head. He gave a disgusted mule. A few years ago, it escaped their lab and came to her home. It killed my little brother. His name was Preston. Marlene paused for a moment at that terrible memory pushing the pain of that loss down deep. I changed my name and went on the run when I realized that my parents would never be brought to justice. The gargoyle, it followed me, always finding me, trying to terrorize me, trying to kill me. A year ago, we had a showdown, and I thought I killed it, Junji, but obviously it crawled out of that pit that I threw it in. Junji nodded his understanding. He sat tall and bold and began scanning the dark night. Marlene stepped back inside and grabbed her phone. She made two calls, one to Sheriff Mosley, the other to her business partner, the paranormal detective named Tiberius Poe. Until last year, she didn't even know Tiberius existed. But after her showdown with the gargoyle in Arizona, she'd met a gnarled old gypsy woman with a cracked crystal ball who told her to come to Nevermore Hollows and protect him. So, she had made her way to town, walked into Tiberius's office, and told him that she was going to be his secretary. Tiberius tried to explain that he could not afford a secretary, so she had initially worked for free. But a while back, Tiberius solved a case that made him very wealthy, and he had made her his business partner. He was currently not in Nevermore, as he had taken a case involving a dogman in the mountains of Tennessee, leaving her to handle any local business. The cell service in the mountains was spotty at best, and she had to leave him a voicemail. She then considered her next course of action. The gargoyle was smart. Its ultimate goal was to kill her, but it had accomplished exactly what it wanted for the night. 
which was to announce itself and to cause terror. She was confident it was headed back to wherever it had chosen to hide out. She also knew that it only wanted her, and that as long as the battle was between them, no one else would get hurt. That left her only one course of action. She glanced at the cat. I need to find it, Junji, and I need to make sure I kill it for good this time. Junji gave an angry flick of the tail and a rumble. He was going with her. She could count on him. Mosley will try to stop me, so let's go before he gets here, she said. She made her way down the steps and around the side of the house to the garage, Junji at her side. The gargoyle likes to hide in dark, quiet places, preferably near water. There's a couple of places around here that fit that description. She lifted up the garage door to reveal her 1967 Triumph Bonneville motorcycle. It was black and sleek and crouched like a panther. Not long after meeting Junji, she had attached a sidecar, in which they sat as they sped about the Nevermore countryside together. Junji swept past her and jumped into the sidecar and gave her an expectant look. Hang on a second, she said. She grabbed an empty wine bottle, quickly filled it with a mixture of kerosene and tar, and put the cork back in. She then took out a shop rag and put both the rag and the bottle into the sidecar beside Junji. Then she slipped into her leather jacket, pulled on her helmet, and positioned the goggles over her eyes. The triumph rumbled awake, and she pulled out of the garage onto the street. Though she was certain that the gargoyle had left the area, she drove slowly, keeping a sharp eye out just in case. But, considering it was dark and the neighborhood was older with lots of trees and hedges, she wasn't expecting to really see the gargoyle even if it was hiding close. Either way, it was after her and would not stop until there was a confrontation. If it was still close, it would follow her and attack her when it felt it had the best opportunity to be victorious. While there were many places in Nevermore Hollows where a monster could hide, only two seemed most likely to accommodate the gargoyle. One was Lugosi Swamp, out near Beck's farm. The other was out by the river near the Pink Flamingo's trailer park. She decided to try the river first, but after 30 minutes of searching, she realized that the swamp was a better possibility. The triumph rumbled along the dark countryside. The night seemed to close in, and the bike's single headlamp spotlighted cows and sheep, and occasionally something less definable lurking in the fields. Marlene glanced over at Junji, who sat at attention, peering into the night, looking for the gargoyle. After a while, they turned off the county road onto an old logging trail that would take them to the edge of Lugosi Swamp. The branches of the trees on each side of the lane reached out over them, 
creating a tight tunnel that threatened to cause claustrophobia. The lane was mostly gravel and hard earth, causing her to drive slowly. The two miles seemed like four, but eventually they found themselves next to a dilapidated shack sitting on the water's edge. It faced the swamp, giving them limited visibility of the rickety porch. The ghostly skull of the moon leered down on them. She shut off the engine, and they were surrounded by polyrhythmic swamp song. Frogs croaked, crickets fiddled, owls hooted, and a loon cried its lunatic melody. The swamp was filled with twisted trees that dripped Spanish moss. They sat quietly, listening to the swampy ballad for any sign of the gargoyle. There was none. If it's here, it'll be in that shack, Marlene whispered. She got off the motorcycle and unholstered her pistol, which had a small flashlight attached under the barrel. From the sidecar, she grabbed the wine bottle, removed the cork, and shoved the rag into the neck, creating a Molotov cocktail. She carefully put the bottle in her left jacket pocket, neck up, then slowly made her way toward the shack, her pistol at the ready. Junji jumped out of the sidecar and crept beside her, looking to the left and to the right, ready to alert her of any attack. They snuck slowly, taking their time, listening as they walked. Junji gave a low growl. Marlene looked down at him and noticed his fur was up, his ears back, his eyes squinted. She felt it too. The hairs on the back of her neck also stood on end. The gargoyle was here. Marlene stepped around the side of the shack and stood in front of the porch. Sitting on the warped bottom step was another severed head. This time, that of a woman. Her eyes were also missing, and her brain had been removed. It also had a candle placed inside the open mouth, which made the sockets glow a sickly yellow. Damn, Marlene whispered. It knew we would come here. She heard a demonic growl above them. She looked up, shining the light toward the roof. Crouched on the apex was the gargoyle, sneering down at them. Even though Marlene had seen the monster up close before, she still felt horror claw at her mind at the sight of it. How could her parents have created such a monster? It was approximately four feet tall. Its head was misshapen, a mixture of human and toad. Its mouth was large with dripping fangs. Its legs were thick, powerful, and ended in sharp claws. She knew that it could run and walk upright like a human, but often would cover greater distance by using the powerful legs to take giant leaps. Its arms were human-like, but massive like a power lifter, and it had a whiplash tail like that of a scorpion, complete with barbed tip. It was covered in skin so black 
that it swallowed the ghostly moonlight. I thought I killed you, Marlene said to the gargoyle. The gargoyle gave a low, rumbling laugh. (laughs) And then it spoke, its voice thick. I can't die. But I shot you twice, point blank, in the chest with a shotgun. Father made me able to heal. As it spoke, its throat bulged grotesquely like that of a toad. Even when hurt real, real bad. Marlene felt a surge of doubt. A conviction that she was going to die here, alone at the edge of this muggy swamp in the middle of the night. But then, she caught movement behind the gargoyle, realized it was Junji. He had climbed onto the roof and was sneaking up on the beast. She needed to keep the gargoyle distracted until Junji could make his move. I guess I'll have to be more thorough this time, she said. You could try, but I will kill you, and then I will be fathers only. Marlene refused to call that madman her father. His only what? Child? Bertrand doesn't love you. He didn't even love me or Preston. You're just a thing he created in a lab. When you escaped, he went back to work and started over. The gargoyle snarled. Its toadish face squirmed into a mask of rage. Liar! Father loves me. He will be happy to see me after I killed you. Junji continued to creep, belly low, head down, ears back, every muscle coiled as he readied to pounce. Marlene shook her head in defiance. He will experiment on you. The gargoyle lifted its head and gave a rage-filled howl. He tensed to jump from the roof and attack, but Junji gave a battle growl and pounced. Junji landed on the gargoyle's back, plunged his claws into the monster's thick black skin. His teeth sunk into the back of its neck. The gargoyle roared in pain and tried to grab Junji with its sharp taloned hands. Marlene leveled her gun, waiting for a clear shot. The gargoyle grabbed Junji by the scruff of his neck and yanked him free. Dark blood poured from the claw wounds Junji had inflicted on his back. Junji squirmed around and latched onto the beast's forearm, drawing more blood. The gargoyle hissed and tossed Junji off the roof. He landed hard a few feet away from Marlene, but he rolled over and into a crouch, ready to fight. Marlene saw her chance and squeezed off three rounds. The first hit the gargoyle in the chest, the second in the throat, the third in its left cheek. The gargoyle roared again and sprang off the roof at her. She stepped away, fired another shot that missed. The gargoyle landed in a crouch, closer than she would have liked. Then, lightning fast, it whipped out its scorpion tail at her stomach. She twisted away, but the barb sliced through her left side, just under her rib cage. 
A white, hot pain, unlike anything she'd ever experienced, made her cry out. The cut wasn't deep, but it burned with venom. In a blur of black and white fur, Junji leaped through the air onto the gargoyle's face. He used his forepaws to claw at its eyes and his rear paws to tear deep gouges into the thick flesh of the gargoyle's throat. The gargoyle roared, rage-filled. It grabbed Junji with its massive hands, causing the cat to squeal in pain as one of the gargoyle's thick claws punctured his shoulder. But Junji continued to claw with the ferocity of a lion. Marlene ran forward and hit the gargoyle, low and hard, as if she were a running back pounding through a defensive line. She felt something in her right shoulder give, and the pain nearly caused her to pass out. But she pushed through the pain and focused through the darkness in her vision. They hit the ground hard. Junji was flung a few feet away. Marlene rolled off the gargoyle and into a crouch. She lifted the gun, having to shoot with her left hand instead of her dominant right hand. She squeezed off two rounds. One tore the gargoyle's ear off in a spray of black blood. The other punctured its neck. The Molotov cocktail had fallen out of her jacket pocket. She crawled over and grabbed it, thankful that it hadn't broken or that the kerosene hadn't spilled out. Then she snatched Junji, who lay on his side, bleeding. She stuffed him inside her jacket as she ran up the rickety stairs and into the shack. She pushed the decaying door closed, knowing it would only buy her a few seconds. But that's all she needed. She ran to the back of the small room and stood in the dark with her back against the wall next to a window, which had lost its glass ages ago. The gargoyle roared with satanic rage and smashed through the dead wood of the door. It stood silhouetted in the doorway by the moonlight. Bullets hurt, but not kill. Even in the ghostly light, Marlene saw its throat bulge toad-like as it spoke. Marlene needed it to be in the center of the room. Please, I'm done, she said, hoping that she could trick the monster into believing she was now helpless. I'm out of bullets, and I don't want to fight. I don't want to die. Please, don't kill me. The gargoyle's face split into a grotesque smile, seeing its chance to finish her off. Then, it rushed at her. Marlene had snatched a lighter from her pocket. She flicked the flame into existence and touched it to the kerosene-splashed rag that hung out of the wine bottle. The room lit up in an orange glow when the rag burst into flames, and she threw it with all her might at the gargoyle. It hit the beast, splashing fire across its chest. Then the bottle shattered at its feet. The dry boards of the floor erupted into flames. The gargoyle smacked at the flames that burned on its chest, but it only spread the fuel onto its arms and throat. It screamed in pain. The flames on the floor leapt up its legs. It began to thrash about the room, throwing flames all around, which ignited the dry tinder of the shack. Within seconds, the whole room was boiling with black smoke and orange flames. 
Marlene smelled the gargoyle's burning flesh. She watched the skin blister and heard the sizzle of fat. She held up her gun and fired four rounds into the gargoyle's head. It fell to the floor and tried to crawl at her, but she could see that it was losing strength. The fire was now so hot that she couldn't breathe, and she could smell her her own hair start to singe at the ends. It was time to leave. She quickly crawled through the window and dropped to the ground, wrenching her ankle. The shack was fully engulfed now, and she hobbled away from the raging fire. Inside, the gargoyles thrashing and screaming finally stopped. The raging inferno painted the swamp with a hellish glow. She heard sirens. She turned to see the four-wheel drive truck that Sheriff Mosley used as a cruiser come roaring down the narrow path. The red and blue lights pulsed out of sync with the flickering glow of the flames, making her woozy. Mosley parked beside her triumph and jumped out. He wore jeans, combat boots, and a Stetson, and he exuded the calm and confidence of a man who has survived the madness of war. Marlene was not surprised to see that Alyssa Hart, the coroner and medical examiner, had come with him. She and the sheriff were close, and she often rode along with him while on patrol. They made their way over to Marlene, and they stood in silence, watching the shack as it was consumed with raging flames. After a moment, Mosley turned to Marlene. Out with it. What's going on? Marlene shared her current life with a small group of friends, which consisted of Tiberius and the two standing with her now but she had kept her past life completely secret. She gave them a short synopsis. My dad is basically a mad scientist. He created a monster, and I thought I killed it last year in Arizona, but I guess not. Mosley tipped back his Stetson, a curious look on his face. There's a lot to unpack here. Marlene shrugged. I guess so. Junji squirmed and gave a pain-filled meow from inside her jacket. Marlene unzipped and gingerly handed him over to Alyssa, who quickly assessed his wounds. I don't think he has any broken bones, Alyssa said. And this puncture in his shoulder is superficial. Elissa always carried a physician's bag with her when riding along with Mosley. She had brought it with her when she got out of his truck. She carefully laid Junji on the ground, opened her bag, and removed a couple syringes and some gauze. She took a look at Marlene's wounds. I'll give you both something for the pain and an antibiotic. We can get a better assessment when we're through here. Now... Tell us about this monster. I've always called it a gargoyle, Marlene said. That's what it looked like to me. 
My parents created it in a lab by splicing various animal DNA with human DNA. It must have regenerative abilities because I was sure I'd killed it last year with two rounds from a 12-gauge. I've always heard that fire is the great destroyer, so that's what I used this time. Mosley had called the fire chief, asking him to send out a rig with a couple of firefighters that he could trust to keep things quiet. The shack caved in on itself while they waited, and after the firefighters arrived, they hosed down what was left and found the gargoyle. It was mostly just a charred skeleton. I see very little human elements, Elissa said. They helped her slip the burnt corpse into a body bag and load it into the back of Mosley's truck. We'll take it back and throw what's left into the crematory at the lab, and we'll make sure it never comes back to life. How did you know I was here? Marlene asked. The pain meds that Alyssa had given her were beginning to take effect, and the pain from her injuries was subsiding. We fully expected you to be at your house after you called us and told us you had an emergency. But all we found was a severed head on your porch. You weren't answering when I called, so I got Judge Leo to sign a warrant to allow me to track your phone. What's the deal with the heads? Alyssa asked. Why did it do that? I've never been completely sure, Marlene replied. But I think it was trying to taunt me, create terror and panic. This gargoyle was evil in every way. They considered this information for a moment. Then Alyssa said, You and Junji ride with Mosley. I'll take your bike and follow you. You know how to ride a motorcycle? Marlene asked. Alyssa gave a sly smile. You're not the only one with a secret past. Mosley cocked his head at Alyssa. It involves a motorcycle? Oh yeah, Alyssa said cryptically. Let's get the body back to my lab, get Marlene and Junji taken care of, and I'll tell you all about it over waffles. Marlene sat in the front passenger seat of Mosley's truck, holding Junji, petting him, making sure he was comfortable as they followed Alyssa back to town. Thank you, Junji. You really saved me back there. Junji shrugged his uninjured shoulder and purred as if to say, It was no big deal. No, really, Marlene said. I owe you big time. To which Junji gave an aw shucks meow. Sheriff Mosley knew that Nevermore Hollows was a place where nothing was as it seemed. And he sensed that this conversation was more than just a quirky young woman cooing at a strange cat. He wasn't quite sure yet what was going on between them, but the energy in the truck resonated with his spirit in a way that brought him a measure of peace. He sensed that somehow it was proof of a profound truth that the world is more mysterious and beautiful than anyone could ever imagine and that no matter how much the rot and the wickedness spread, in the end, peace 
and beauty would be victorious. Then, as if the cat could read his mind, Junji glanced over at him with his cat-green eyes and winked.